0: Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Luke 1, 26 through 38, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you.
1: on the first Sunday of Advent and for our Advent party. Very excited to celebrate with you, eat some food. It'll be a good day. We are, as you can see, hopefully from around you, uh, celebrating Advent. And for those of you who maybe don't come from a, like, liturgical or historic church perspective, which I actually don't myself. I grew up in Uh, what is sometimes referred to as like low church settings. We didn't do anything liturgical, didn't engage in the church calendar. So Advent was new to me, but a thing I found and have really learned to love. Advent just means the season of arrival, where we begin to celebrate and anticipate the Advent or the coming, the incarnation of Jesus, God in the flesh to be with us. And for the next couple of weeks, four weeks, we will be having this conversation, talking about the Advent, talking about the Incarnation, and our service will look rather Christmassy. I don't know if you noticed, there's some Christmas decorations laid about, thanks to Haley Burke, who did that for us. Yeah, she's going to love that. Uh, She loves being clapped for. (laughs) And you'll notice there's more Christmassy songs, and we're doing an Advent party, lots of fun, Advent, Christmassy feeling things. However, there's one part of our service that will not be traditionally Advent feeling. And you just got an introduction of that with our collective prayer in Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 will actually be what directs like the teaching portion of our Sunday service. So the conversation that we're going to have right now will come from Psalm 23. And if you were in here for the call to worship, that came from Psalm 23, written by Ben Drum. Uh, It was beautiful. Hopefully you're here for that going forward so you can hear it. But the teaching portion of our service will come from Psalm 23. And that might seem like a bit of a strange pairing to include in the Advent season a conversation about the Psalms. But I love, personally... To use the Psalms as a guide for Advent. The Psalms are the prayers or the songs of Israel. It was like their common book of prayer and hymnals and of worship. And these are prayers that emerge from real experiences that people in Israel are having. Psalm 23 comes from the life of David, and we don't know exactly the context, but most scholars believe it's something harrowing and difficult that leads him to write this. And If you read the Psalms, you can feel that kind of like visceral, evocative reality that something is happening in their life leading to this kind of prayer, this kind of utterance. I think that's what makes the psalm still one of the most like relevant or Easily read books today, there's just something about it that feels relatable. Even though their experiences are sometimes thousands of years removed from us, you can feel something in there that resonates with your own experience. And one of the biggest themes that runs throughout the Psalms, often runs throughout prayer generally, is a theme of hope or anticipation or of longing. Prayers where you are in the middle of something and you are waiting for something and hoping for something. Mostly God's presence. For God to show up and rescue, for him to show up and work, for him to show up and bring comfort. Sometimes the prayers look like anticipations for deliverance and sometimes they just look like anticipation of a word of hope. But anticipation, hope, Longing, it runs throughout the psalms as a major theme. And in these real prayers recorded from real experiences, we get to feel real anticipation. So I love the psalms. They can be messy theologically. They can be wild. If you ever read through them, you're like, what? But they name something so true about hoping and waiting. And I cannot think of anything more Advent-y than that. Naming our anticipation, bringing our whole selves, the messiness of it, the confusion of it, to the process of longing for God's presence to arrive. What I hope for us during this conversation with the Psalms is that it allows us maybe to enter into Advent just a bit differently. I think what we are familiar with when it comes to Advent is we are familiar with the story of Jesus' birth. I think even if you didn't grow up in the church, you can walk into a Target and see a nativity scene. It's like one of these weird things where it's just like, it is everywhere. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes our familiarity with the Advent story can almost make it a little stale, a little removed from us. Like it's a storybook, it's fun, it's cutesy, and it lives kind of... Over here, I think when that happens, we lose the sense or maybe we have never had the sense of anticipation, hope, or urgency that is meant to surround the season of Advent. As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of Mary, Jesus' mother's prayer. When she finds out that Jesus is going to be born, she offers this beautiful prayer. And it is—just listen to the words of it as I read them—because it is not cute— And it's not a cute Advent story. It's the Advent story that you're anticipating a new world, not just something fun. She says this In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has pulled down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty handed. I love Mary's prayer when she finds out that Jesus is going to be born because it so rarely looks like the Advent prayers that we bring to God. You can hear in her words anticipation, hope, urgency. And it is an urgency and an anticipation that is born from her real experience. As a woman living in subjugation in the ancient world, she brings all of that with her into this prayer. And it's like, out of the depth of my very being, God, would you do something? Would you move? What I love about this is I think it just feels challenging to me. Like, I want to pray this Advent season like Mary prays. Out of anticipation and urgency and hope. From my real experience with my whole self. I want to pray like Mary. And so we're going to spend time in the Psalms because they are prayers like Mary's. Prayers of hope and anticipation that I think invite us and free us to bring our whole selves into the conversation. And specifically, we'll be living in Psalm 23. We're going to break it into three parts over the next couple of weeks. But today, I just want to begin with really the very first verse, the first like sentence of the first verse is where we're going to live for most of today. Because I think what happens in this first verse shapes so much of how we think about prayer, how we think about longing, anticipation, and even the Advent story. So the prayer begins, the Lord is my shepherd. It's one of those very famous, very beautiful declarations about God. But before we get into it, I just want to ask you a rhetorical question. What comes to mind When you hear that phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. What images come to mind? What feelings are provoked within you? What sense surfaces in you? Is there something that comes to mind when you hear that phrase, the Lord is my shepherd? David begins this psalm with an image of God and everything that is to come is basically a commentary on this image. And so it's worth pausing for a second to just understand what David means when he says shepherd and maybe what images are evoked within him so that those same images can be evoked within us. Especially because prayer is an imaginative act. And here's what I mean when I say that. The way we image God will shape the way we approach prayer. It'll shape the way we approach ethics. It'll shape the way we approach one another. It'll shape the way we approach worship. It'll shape so many things. But in the conversation of prayer, the way you imagine God will shape how you approach God. If God is an angry judge, it will shape the way you pray to God. If God is just a distant or aloof figure, it will shape the way that you approach prayer in God. If God is an exasperated parent or boss who is constantly disappointed in you, it will shape how you pray. The image of God that is in our hearts, I think more than in our minds, will set the approach of our worship, the approach of our prayer. I think it's why prayers in the Bible so often begin with an image like the Lord is my shepherd or with an image like our Father as Jesus teaches us to pray. Those prayers are not reminding God who God is. They are reminding you. I'm not having a conversation with God being like, hey, just so you know, you're still my dad. So you have to treat me nicely. You're legally obligated. No, it is a centering action. It is an imaginative action that our hearts, our hopes, our imagination would have an understanding of who God is that would lead us into the approach of prayer. So David begins with an image. An evocative, imaginative statement about who God is. The Lord is my shepherd. And so what does shepherd mean for David? And how can that shape our own understanding? Shepherd imagery shows up a lot in the Bible. And it shows up very interesting in the life of David a lot. David is the writer of this psalm, the one who's praying these words. And before David is king, he is a shepherd. That's his like high school job. He tended his father's sheep, which meant he lived with the sheep. He, like, counted the sheep. He, like, hung out there. He was, like, the youngest of the brothers. And they were like, you go do that thing. We're busy without you. And there's this moment that I really love where David, he's still pretty young, and he's trying to convince someone that he should be allowed to go to war based upon the fact that he was a shepherd. And this is what he says. And I think it's helpful to illustrate how David maybe imagines a shepherd. This is what David says in 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, who's the current king of Israel, your servant, remember the context. He's trying to convince him to go to war, right? Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. What? When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Just as a side, what kind of bears is David seizing by the hair? If my house cat turns on me, I'm not seizing it by the hair. I am leaving the room. I don't know what kind of bears or lions David is fighting. What I love about this moment is that David is a shepherd, and his experience of being a shepherd is going to be brought into this moment of prayer. What did I do? How did I engage? How did I protect my sheep? What kind of risk did I put myself in in order to preserve their own safety? What kind of links did I go to in order to return them? And David is like, okay, from my own story, oh, that's what God is like. That helps inform my image, my understanding, my imagination of this person. It's a direct point of reference to help David understand what God is like. And we can do the same thing in our own stories, our own lives. Parents can do this as they look at their children and they're like, oh, how I love my child. God is like that. I think the opposite can be true too. If you've had negative experiences, you can be like, God is unlike these things. But our own stories, our own experiences, like David's, can inform our imagination for who God is. We can draw upon those experiences to make sense of God. And so David, who was a shepherd, uses his understanding, his experience to shape it. Oh, it's like someone who will go to great lengths to put themselves in great danger to protect his sheep. What's interesting for David is that shepherd is bigger than just his high school job. It continues to be like a defining part of his story. Later, David is anointed king of Israel becomes king of Israel, and shepherd language is often used to describe the leadership of Israel. That leaders in Israel are to be like good shepherds. And actually, most of the time when the language of shepherds shows up in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, it's criticizing Israel's bad leaders. And a very good moment of this is in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel gets a word from God criticizing Israel's shepherds. And here's what he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly. This is a profound critique of Israel's leadership. But in the positive, it is also a beautiful image of what a shepherd should be. What David would know his responsibility is as a king of Israel. A true shepherd is one whose concern whose orientation, whose care is for his flock. Someone who strengthens the weak, heals the sick, binds up the injured. Someone who goes to great lengths to bring back the stray and leads them in kindness and gentleness. When David prays, the Lord is my shepherd. He's got his high school job experience of tending to sheep. He's got his failures, and experience as a leader of Israel, shaping how he thinks about being a shepherd. And these things begin to inform like his imagination for what God is like. God is like these things. God is like I was when I would chase after sheep. God is like a better leader of Israel. Where they failed, it actually reveals what God is like. There's one final imagery that I think would have shown up a lot in the Old Testament that would have been about a shepherd, that would be in David's mind when he's writing this. And it's about God specifically. God is often described like a shepherd. When God leads Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, it's described as a shepherd leading his flock. But one of my favorite moments comes from the prophet Isaiah. This is such a beautiful statement. Prophet Isaiah talking about God says this, like a shepherd. God will tend the flock. He will gather the lambs in His arms and lift them onto His laps. He will gently guide the nursing ewes. I don't think we use the word gentle enough when we're talking about God. Maybe we're more familiar with the 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 grab-the-bear-by-the-hair kind of language, which is true of God, but Isaiah says God is gentle and kind, lifting lambs into his lap and gently guiding the nursing you. I love these different images because... We've got these three kind of profound images of a shepherd that are popping up in the Old Testament that would have been in David's head. This is language you would know, images that he would be familiar with. It's rattling around in him when he comes to this moment and says, the Lord is my shepherd. His time as a shepherd, seeking lost sheep speaks to it. His experience and failure and success as a leader would have spoken to it. And his own encounters with God would have shaped it. And he brings them to this moment of prayer and says, the Lord is my shepherd, like these images. And that returns us, I think, back to the rhetorical question I asked at the beginning, which is what images or feelings come to mind when you hear the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd? And maybe more broadly, what images or feelings come to mind when you think about God? God. The theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes to our minds when we think about God as the most important thing about us, we tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move towards our mental image of God. I always think that our image of God sort of operates like a gravitational pull of a planet. It's deep in there, buried within us, and it exerts its gravitational pull on us. And even if we know certain things about God to be true up here, and even if we've tried to deconstruct or reform or correct certain images of God in here, if that image still lives in our bodies and our hearts and our imaginations, it pulls on us like gravity. If somewhere buried in us is images of God distant and removed, images of God exasperated, images of God is angry or ashamed, they will still pull on our hearts even if up here we know true things about God. And I think one of the ways that we try to fix this dynamic in our lives is learning more about God, which is beautiful. It's good. Never hear from me that learning is bad. I've spent too much money doing it for that to be the case. And so much of what we do here in this community is try to help us understand the truth about who God is, that God looks like Jesus. And that's always been true from the beginning to the end, sacrificial, other-oriented love, always. But we are more than brains in bats. We are bodies and we are hearts. And just because something is here does not mean that it is in here. There's some interesting research that's come out lately um, about learning styles when I was a kid, I don't know if this was still true of you guys or if this was true of your experience, but when I was a kid, it was a big conversation around different kinds of learning styles. Some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners, some people are kinesthetic learners. And there's a bunch of research that's come out that it's like, nobody's any of those things. <laughs> but certain tasks are those things, right? If you're trying to learn a language, it's actually very hard to visualize a French accent, right? You, it's... That's not a visual task. It is an auditory task by its very nature. And some of us have invested more time and energy in certain kinds of skills, but some work falls into kinesthetics and some work falls into auditory and some work falls into visual for all of us because we are human. We are bodied. We are mind. We are heart. We're whole beings. And the reason I say that is I think sometimes we try to address heart issues or bodied issues with God only mentally. Only by like learning certain things about God and hoping that it seeps into the rest of us. And in some ways it will, but I think this is one of the powers of practices like prayer or worship or gathering at the table or gathering in community. Practices that are about our whole selves. But specifically in the context of this moment, I think it is one of the powers of prayer. And a prayer like Psalm 23 is that it can help heal and transform our images of God. Sometimes when we think about prayer, we think about like the words we offer to God. That's a beautiful kind of prayer. But in Christian tradition, there's other kinds of prayers. There's prayers like centering prayer, where you're trying to root yourself in something. St. Ignatius had the imaginative prayer, which I, I love. There are kinds of prayers where you're trying to get more of your heart and your body into the process of prayer. It's less about what you say and more about what you receive or how you perceive or how you center yourself in the practice. And Psalm 23, verse 1, I think is that kind of prayer. It begins with this image of God that is big and beautiful and descriptive. And from David, it brings his lived experience, his experience as a leader, his experience encountering God, and it begins to shape like an imaginative picture of who God is. So that as he begins to pray, it comes from a solid image, a healing image, a whole image of God's goodness, of God's orientation, of God's concern for him. These kinds of prayers, they begin in a picture. I think we all are invited to do this. We can pull from our own experiences. We can tell stories from the Bible. We can tell stories from our own life. We can ask questions like, how is God like a shepherd? How is God different than a shepherd? How is God like leaders around me? How is God different than the leaders around me? You can ask, do we picture God as gentle as Isaiah can? And if the answer to that question is no, then we can be like, why? What are the images and barriers and feelings that make that hard to do? I do this a lot in my own prayer life. Most of the time, prayer for me does look like just, like a, just a machine gun of petitions. But I always try to begin in this practice of imaging God. And when I find in my litany of petitions that I start to feel guilty or ashamed for bringing a litany of petitions to God, I go back to the image. So prayer often looks like that for me. It's like, God is a shepherd. This is good. Okay, let's pray these things. Uh-oh, something in here. Is the, the pool is starting to move. Let's go back to that solid image of who God is. These practices... This kind of prayer of receiving an image from God, of dwelling on that image, I think it has the power to heal and transform our images of God and lead us into deeper trust because it takes what is here, gets it to here. And there's one more image of God as a shepherd that I do want to look at before we wrap up. We've seen how these images are shaped by David's life. But there's another image that's really important to look at. And it comes in that same passage we were reading before of Ezekiel 34. It's after the leadership has been critiqued, after shepherds of Israel have been criticized. God says to Ezekiel, The Lord God proclaims, I myself will search for my flock and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out the flock when some in the flock have been scattered, so I will seek out my flock. Shepherd imagery, along with it being a comfort to Israel, along with it being this kind of like centering practice to lead their approach, it is also anticipatory language. Hopeful language, longing language. It acknowledged that God was both with Israel, but that also Israel needed God to arrive. I think this is one of the beautiful and strange tensions of Christian spirituality and prayer generally, is that this is the tension our prayers always hold, our worship always holds, our table always holds, the tension of Advent. Yes, we believe that God is here, but look around. It doesn't feel like it. And yes, God is a good shepherd, but this moment feels like a dark valley. And yes, God is with me, but lack nothing? Huh. Prayer holds the tension of these moments. doesn't always resolve it, so you can just live with that for a bit. So Israel prays God, our shepherd, and it is both hopeful and comforting, but it is also looking forward, anticipating that God would move. And Israel nurses that hope for hundreds of years. Until we come to the New Testament, where shepherd imagery is again picked up. First, in Matthew 2, verse 6, is an announcement about a birth. Quoting from the prophet Micah, we hear you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Shepherd imagery is picked up and applied to the birth of Jesus. Maybe this is the one that God has been talking about. But then we get a really beautiful and vivid moment of the shepherd language being picked up again by Jesus himself, and he just applies it to himself in John 10, verse 11, and says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus takes the imagery of good kings and a gentle God and a high schooler who would chase after his lost sheep and put himself in danger and says, hey, I've got two thumbs. That's me. Jesus himself is that final image of a shepherd. As we pray, the Lord is my shepherd, as we bring our own experiences, as we bring the stories of our own life, as we bring the images that are informed and mediated through the story of God, we also bring them to Jesus, who is the ultimate word and revelation of God. As we see him move and teach and heal, we are seeing the good shepherd incarnate, embodied. We bring these moments to him in prayer, our images of God, to the ultimate image of God. We could heal, enlarge, deepen, or transform our images of God. You see, this is what we celebrate at Advent. And it's why we rehearse this story year in and year out. as we close, I want us to take a moment. We've been talking about prayer. We've been talking about imaging God. And I want to take a moment for us to just do this together a bit. To try to center ourselves and to enter into the practice of imaginative prayer. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to ask that you get a little comfortable. shift your seat around a little bit. And then, if you feel comfortable doing this, would you close your eyes with me? Just get a posture of prayer. Close your eyes. Get comfortable. Take a deep breath. Messiah, the Lord is your shepherd. Can you imagine God is a shepherd? What images or feelings surface when you picture God as a shepherd? Can you see someone who chases after lost sheep? Someone who stands up to bears and lions? Someone who lays down their life? Missio, the Lord is your shepherd. Can you picture God as a shepherd who is gentle and kind? Can you see someone healing the sick, binding up the broken or strengthening the weak? Can you see an image of someone who sits with lambs and gently guides you? Messiah, the Lord is your shepherd. Would you let this image, this forming within your mind, just saturate for a moment? Would it move through you? Maybe it's running into other barriers or obstacles. Experiences or traditions or other images of God that uh, seem to contradict it. It's okay. Just return to the image of the Lord is your shepherd. It doesn't have to fight with those other images, but I do think it can heal them. Mr. would you take this image? And as we continue to worship together, would you let it form and shape and deepen in your mind? Would you bring that image to the table? As we come to this place where our good shepherd has prepared a meal for us, would you let it shape worship? And as we leave this place, would this image continue to form in you and shape your Advent experience and from this image let's pray Jesus you are our good shepherd and there's so many other images in my, just if I just think my own life there's other images other experiences other words that want to contradict that most of them come from my own failures or my own shame if I'm being honest So Jesus, would you just gently heal images of you that are false or incorrect? This Advent season, would we see the birth of you as the revelation of our good shepherd, the ultimate word of God, who is gentle and kind, who lays down his life for his sheep? God, would you let that image continue to grow in us this season? Would it produce in us trust, hope, a willingness to bring our whole selves, whole bodies, whole minds and hearts to you, to risk and love and goodness, maybe even hope. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.